We're looking this morning at Mark's Gospel and chapter 9, and we'll be picking up the story in verse 33, and uh, as we've been doing all along through this series, these are slightly longer sections, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, and I think we'll see how this all connects uh, wonderfully as uh, Jesus is teaching us some important things here and as Mark is telling the story. So Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, and I'll read for us until verse 50 at the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word together. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be sorted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Do please be seated. Church politics are fun, aren't they? I remember once talking with a um, business leader who had ample experience of politics, both in the world of business and in church life, and I asked him to compare with me his two experience of those politicization in either the business world or the church world, and he said to me, well, at least in the business world, people are honest. I suppose in church life, Even at our worst, 
we feel like we need to pretend to be holy. Church and church politics, the politicization is right at the heart of the passage we're looking at this morning. It's a huge issue down through church history. It has turned off many people from the real spiritual engagement that the church is meant to offer. And Jesus is addressing it head on throughout this passage. The summary of what he's saying is right at the end in his last uh, uh, message there, what he talks about saying there in the last, uh, last verse, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What Jesus is saying there by that verse is that we are to be passionate and committed and vigorous in our engagement with the gospel, with church, with doctrine, with ethics. But at the same time, we are not to do it in such a way that is at war with each other. We're to be at peace with one another. We're not to politicize our passion. And yet so often the reverse has been the case, hasn't it? Uh, I remember one person once saying to me that the pro- problem with Protestants is they're always protesting. And the same can be true in all sorts of different denominations across the gamut of church experience, politics. And here Jesus is saying, yes, have passion for doctrine. Yes, have passion for the gospel. Yes, have passion for truth. But not in such a way that is at war politically with one another. Have peace with one another. One of the great preachers of yesterday, a man called Campbell Morgan, who's not these days at all well known, but in his own day was famous. Campbell Morgan was the predecessor for Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a well-known preacher in London for many years and is still, his books are still widely read, though Campbell Morgan's much less so. But Campbell Morgan, when he was preaching through this text, I think observed the illustration that we're intended to keep in our mind. Jesus, as he teaches through this issue of the politicization of church experience, saying, have salt, but be at peace with one another. As Jesus is teaching through that, he has all the way through the whole passage, a little child in his arms as an illustration of the tenderness that we are to have. He is saying, yes, by all means, be salty, be spicy, be passionate for truth, but not in such a way that does not have peace with one another, not in such a way that is politically competitive, ambitiously competitive, as he hugs this child. And as he's giving these lessons from a little child, there are three of them, and the first runs from verse 33 to verse 37. And the lesson here uh, is really quite, uh, quite amazing when you begin to understand what's going on. Jesus, if you have a Bible open, you'll notice, has just been 
telling them that he's going to die and rise again. So right before the passage, he said, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He's going to die at the cross. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And as they go to Capernaum, with this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, reverberating through their minds, what are they talking about? The, the message of the cross? The astonishing truth that Jesus is going to die? No. What are they talking about? Who is going to be the greatest? In other words, having just heard that Jesus is about to die and not able to comprehend what it means that he'll rise again from the dead, it triggers in their mind the succession plan. Jesus will be gone. Who's going to be the leader? Who will be the greatest? Who will be top of the ladder? Who will hold the title of greatest? Who will be in charge? And they're they're arguing about this. And when Jesus asks them what they've been talking about, they're silent. That silence is a word with deep meaning in Mark's gospel. Earlier when Jesus had uh, confronted the Pharisees, the Pharisees complaining that he'd healed on the Sabbath, and Jesus had answered their complaint, were told that they were silent. And Jesus, when he commanded the storm, he commanded it to be silent. And here they are silent, with shame, of course because they've been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. The very reverse of being at peace with one another. And so Jesus brings them together, the twelve. This nascent, early church. And begins to teach them. And what he's saying to them in his principle is aim to be servant, not master. You'll find it in verse 35. This is the first of these three lessons. Aim to be servant, not master, he says. If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he gives the illustration of the child. But we must take a moment with that principle, for it is profound. What Jesus is not saying is, if you really want to get to the top, the way to do that is to pretend to be a servant. (laughs) Note that, ambitious friends. Jesus is not saying that here is my secret ingredient to rise to the top. Nor is he advocating a sort of fake Dickensian Uriah Heap kind of show of humility. Oh, I'm so humble. I'm just a servant. I've got nothing to offer. Oh, I'm nothing. No, instead, Jesus is teaching a profoundly important principle of life, of any organization, and especially church organizations, which is that what really matters to him and what really matters to the health of an organization is that we're concerned not with who's in charge, not with who has the title of master, not with who's the greatest. What we're concerned with is getting the job done. What matters is not who chairs the committee. 
What matters is not what title or position does so-and-so hold, or do I hold, or you hold. What matters is getting the job done of evangelism, discipleship, taking care of the poor, serving. And then to illustrate that principle, as I say, he uh, brings this child and puts him in right in the middle of them. And then taking him in his arms, the Greek is very tender. Um, it means enfold, hug. Look, guys, this is the kind of thing I mean. This child. Now again, we need to think about what Jesus is and is not saying. What he's not saying is that the key of understanding Christianity is immaturity. Being juvenile, being childish. Now, when Jesus teaches about how the, uh, the, the essence of the kingdom is this child and receiving Jesus, receiving the Father who sent Jesus, is, is illustrated by this child, he's, he's not saying be immature, be childish. Uh, nor is he, uh, is he saying literally that. The person who serves in Kids Harbor is more spiritually impressive than the person who serves uh, getting the coffee ready or being an usher or, or, or what have you. What he's saying is that this child who is embraced by him is showing us what it means to trust, to have faith, not notionally, but like a child with his or her father or mother, embraced, trusting. Remember when I was a long time ago preaching once, and one of our children was a little bit younger, and I'd been preaching for some time, and this person had been coming to the church for a little while, and they became a real Christian. And when we were interviewing that person as to what was the trigger, they'd heard a lot of truth from me, preached over the, over the years that they've been coming. And when we got to know this, this person had become a real Christian, what was the trigger for them? What we found out was they had observed me with my, with my child. Because what it indicated for them was a kind of trust that then breathed into the room Jesus is hugging the child. What he's saying is, aim to be servant, not master. In other words, disciples, listen to me. Don't be concerned with who's in charge. Don't be concerned with who's the greatest. Instead, like this child, trust and get the job done. Aim to be servant, not master. Look at this child and how he trusts me. Don't worry about what position you hold. Don't worry about the politicization when I'm particularly tired and exhausted of church politics. Not here. We've never, ever, and the whole 150 years of the church had any politics in this church. Now, we're basically pretty healthy, I think, in that regard. But when you hear and see what's going on, to look at one of my children... 
I serve a heavenly father. I serve a heavenly father. Aim to be servant, not master. The first of these lessons from the child. The second is uh, from verse uh, 38 to verse 41. And John, who's been listening to Jesus, and now Jesus holding his child, John pipes up and he speaks and he says, Teacher, we, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So here's John, and he's heard this teaching that's been going on, and he's been corrected for, for his arguing about who is the greatest. Peter, James, and John went up to the transfiguration. They, they come back down, and they say, look, we went up to the transfiguration. We're far greater than you other disciples. And, and then the other disciples come back to them and say, well, Peter, you can't think you're that great because it was just a week or so ago when Jesus rebuked you for being satanic-like, get behind me, Satan, and on and on the argument had gone. And now, with the child aiming to be servant and master, John is thinking, okay, Jesus, help me understand. There was this guy, he was doing an exorcism, and we stopped him. Is, is that the right thing to do? And Jesus says, no. Because, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, the criterion you should use is not whether someone is in your club, John. Not whether someone's in your group, John. But whether someone is for us. Not whether that person is one of us but whether they're for us. What a, what a huge difference. The being one of us is a criterion of tribe. Being for us is an issue of vision. Being one of us is an issue of uh, do they fit in our group? Being for us is an issue of mission. And so often in church life, we, we attempt to discern whether something is something we should support based upon whether it is part of our group, whether they go to the same conferences that we go to, listen to the same YouTube videos of preachers that we listen to. Are they in our group? But to discern by whether someone is in our group is both insufficiently discerning and partisan, political, tribal, territorial. It's insufficiently discerning because someone can be a part of our group but actually not be for us, not hold to the same doctrine. Oh, they're friends of ours. They go to the same meetings. They listen to the same preachers, but they're actually not about proclaiming the gospel. They don't have the same vision. They don't really have the same doctrine. It's insufficiently discerning, but it's also tribal, partisan, political. Because someone can be outside of our group from a different background, a different class, a different social economic bracket a different race, a different ethnicity, 
and yet be fully for proclaiming the gospel. You see, says Jesus, here's this child. Will you not embrace the one who maybe isn't one of us, but is for us? Uh, That's the principle. We do need to take a moment to think of the exorcism. John brings up the exorcism because it was a matter of controversy um, between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you may remember earlier Mark's gospel, had criticized Jesus for casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus replied saying, if I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons, then the satanic kingdom has fallen. There's civil war between the demons. But actually, no, I'm casting out Demons by the finger and the power of God. It's, it's God incarnate who is overthrowing the satanic kingdom. But this was a matter of controversy. And so John, almost certainly, I think, had decided to stop this disconnected exorcism from their group, lest it cause yet more confusion. And Jesus says, no, the issue is not whether they're one of us, but whether they're for us. But while with this, <laughs> to our contemporary ears, weirdness of exorcisms while that may seem difficult for us to get our minds around as contemporary modern people and while I'm sure it is true that far more exorcisms happen than on the fake fanfare of a tv show they still need to happen we still need to cast out the demon of drink. I don't just mean a drink, I mean alcoholism. We still need to cast out the demon of anger. I don't mean just once losing your temper, but a pattern of anger that you cannot get rid of that kind of temper merely by losing it again. The demon of unbelief, however much rational, credible, biblical material there is, finding that you can't believe. The demon of loneliness that tells you you're not one of them. They don't want you. You're not part of that group. And then Jesus, with a child in his arms, is saying, if you're for us, we'll embrace you. So these three lessons from the child, and the first is aim to be servant, not a master, and the, and, and the second is accept what is truly done in Jesus' name. The third is this issue of stumbling. At all costs, Jesus is saying here in this last section, at all costs, avoid stumbling and being a stumbling block. And this story runs, it continues as Jesus is teaching. You can see he's, he's continuing the teaching with the child in his arms. And we listen to him talk here about hell, and there's Jesus with a child in his arms. What he's saying is, at all costs, avoid 
stumbling and being a stumbling block. Now this is a, a passage with a number of different components in it that we need to clarify. And we'll just briefly take them one by one. First, you may notice that in your Bibles there are some verses that are in the footnotes rather than the main text. And verses 44 and 46, which are the same as verse 48, are in, not in the main text. So why is that? We believe that the original manuscripts are utterly without error, and we also believe that God in his sovereignty has overseen the transmission of the manuscripts in such a way that the Bibles that we have in our hands are authoritatively God's word. While that is the case, there is also, as C.S. Lewis once put it, a science of discernment in terms of the the textual uh, tradition, uh, the manuscripts. And in all likelihood, these uh, two verses, verses 44 and 46, which precisely repeat verse 48 were a later insertion by a rather overzealous copyist who wanted to sort of underline verse 48 three times, as as it were. Almost certainly Jesus just said it once, but if he did say it three times, it doesn't change the meaning, of course. Uh, If you want to follow that further, you could read a recent book by Pete Williams, Peter Williams, on the reliability of the Gospels or the classic book, Um, Are the New Testament documents reliable by F.F. Bruce? But in any case, that's the reason for why those verses are in the footnote. Second, we also need to understand what's the connection between verses 49 and 50 and the rest of this section. Suddenly, Jesus says, verse 49, for everyone will be sorted with fire. Sort is good, but the sort has lost its sortedness, etc. And then he concludes with, I have sought in yourselves and be at peace with one another. But what on earth is the connection between those two verses and what he's just been saying earlier about hell? Um, one possibility is that these words of Jesus were in another place in the Gospels and were sort of inaccurately put here, apart from the, uh, but apart from the problem of that, rises with the reliability of what we have in front of us, we shouldn't go towards assuming a lack of coherence in what Jesus is saying without doing the hard work to try and understand it. So what then could be a coherent connection between verse 49 and verse 48? One option that is uh, often given is that Jesus is talking about the same kind of fire in verse 49 as he has right beforehand. So for everyone will be sorted with fire. And those people who think that will then say that what Jesus is talking about is purgatory, the doctrine that some in the church have held historically, that there will be a purging that takes place after we die that sort of gets us ready for heaven. But the trouble with thinking that Jesus here is talking about purgatory is that if he is, what he's saying is that isn't the fire that he's talking about. He's talking about hellfire. So he cannot be talking about purgatory. What he would be saying is everyone will go to hell, which we know from the rest of Jesus' teaching the Bible isn't the case. Now, most, in all likelihood, Jesus is shifting his understanding, his, his 
um, the meaning of the word fire to a new association. And almost certainly what Jesus has in his mind is the practice in the, of the sacrifices of the Old Testament that they would be salted. And so he's now talking about how there is a sacrificial commitment that he's looking for from all his disciples to be salted with fire. That is to be passionately committed to the gospel, to the truth, to the doctrine. There'll be that fiery, salty commitment to him. And that's why he says, verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, that is the ancient compound of salt that had other elements in it becomes corrupt, how can you make it salty again? And then have salt in yourselves, that is this passionate, fiery commitment, but not in such a way that becomes competitive or politicized, have, be at peace, be at peace with one, with one another. Once we see that connection, then the rest of this section begins to hold together. That's uh, why he uh, repeats the word sin, which in the original has an uh, image of stumbling. And what he's saying is he's holding that little child in his arms, is at all costs avoid stumbling and being a stumbling block. And he says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. The, the great millstone is the kind of millstone that was used, the, the, the donkey was used to grind with that kind of millstone. So it's a large millstone. And the image, of course, is a gross image of a huge millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea. And of course, what Jesus is saying is that at all costs, avoid stumbling and being a stumbling block. It, in other words, it would be better to have a quick death than cause one of these little ones to stumble through your political infighting disciples. And then he uh, three times repeats these body metaphors. That's what they are. It's not literal. The foot and the hand and the eye. He's speaking in the language of the ancients who would talk about parts of the body as representative of core parts of the personality, your gut, your, your, your eye, your hand, uh, your foot. They're core parts of the personality. And so what Jesus is saying is, and we, we speak similarly today too, don't we, sometimes, that to do that would feel like cutting off my right arm. It's like a core part of my personality has been cut away from me. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, is if it feels to you like giving up that position, being the greatest, giving up that place of prestige and power, it's like cutting off your right arm. It's still worth giving it up because you don't want to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then he talks famously here about hell. The word hell translates the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was literally the rubbish dump, the trash heap outside of Jerusalem. Gehenna had been the place where in ancient Israel... Pagan human sacrifices were performed. That was Gehenna. And good King Josiah had put a stop 
to those gross pagan human sacrifices in Gehenna and instead turned it into a rubbish dump, a trash heap, where there was constant burning of the trash and the trash that was not being burnt was being eaten away by worms. And so Jesus uses this place with its association of gross pagan human sacrifice and the, the visual of the, of the constant burning and the worms eating away at the trash to speak about the unquenchable fire of, of hell. Those people who bristle at hellfire preaching need to wrap their minds around the fact that of all the biblical figures, Jesus speaks about hell more than any other. And yet by the same token, those who accept that doctrine of hell, as hard as it is, but accept it, need to wrestle with the fact that here in this passage, the primary focus that Jesus has is on on his disciples politicizing their church experience about who is the greatest in such a way that causes one of these little ones to stumble. As I've been thinking about this passage uh, this week, it has struck me how different would the history of the church across the globe have been if we had just paid more close attention to what Jesus here teaches. To aim to be servant, not master. To accept whatever is truly done in Jesus' name, not whether they're one of us, but whether they're for us. Same vision, proclaiming the gospel, same doctrine. Even they're not part of our club. And at all costs, avoid stumbling and being a stumbling block. Because people's souls are at stake. And that's far more important than who's the greatest. How different would the history of the church have been? How different could the future of the church be? What would it be like if we, as healthy as I think we are in this regard, in all sorts of different ways, increasingly though, became a place where we're defined by service, not who's the master, where we're defined by vision, the gospel, not whether someone's part of our club or from our background. Think of the impact. Think of all the little ones that would not stumble. Or may it be so. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Lord God, help us to aim to be servant, not master. Even that means, from a worldly perspective, having a naive trust in you. A childlike trust in you as our Father. 
Help us, Lord, to accept uh, what is truly done in your name, even if it's not quite one of us. Not exactly from our background, but still proclaiming the biblical gospel. And Lord, we pray that here at College Church we might be a place where the little ones, those of nascent growing faith, would not stumble. Help us, Lord, to be salty, to not move one inch away from the stake in the ground of the biblical gospel and the truth of the doctrine. And yet at the same time, to have peace with one another. Lord, we suspect that the key to that is to keep closer in our mind and heart what before this passage you've just been teaching on your death and resurrection you of course are the ultimate example aren't you Lord of what it means to be servant to give your life for us that we might live oh how much therefore do we have to thank you? Perhaps, Lord, as we remember this Thanksgiving, that gratitude, that gospel gratitude, is so often the key. You who gave yourself for us, how will we not serve with a passionate commitment to that gospel of the cross and also a loving peace with one another. We pray you'd help us, therefore, to be a people of, of thanksgiving this year around your cross. Salty, but not selfishly or politically competitive. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.